If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 29. Genesis chapter 29. We'll be covering uh, chapters 29 and 30, but we'll only be reading the first 14 verses there of Genesis chapter 29 this morning. And if you have, uh, if you, once you get open to that text, if you would, why don't you go ahead and stand with me out of reverence for the reading, the words of our God. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us. Beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well were the the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said to them, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well, and see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. And then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Let's pray together. O Lord our God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And we thank you for these beautiful chapters of the Bible that show us who you are and what you mean for your people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Something I've noticed over the years is that pride is something that we hate in other people, but love in ourselves. But pride has an amazing ability to disguise itself as a strength, when in reality it's so clear to us and other people that pride is such a weakness. Humility, again, is something we kind of despise in ourselves but love in others. We also overestimate how humble we are, we tend to do. Cole told me just this morning, he's very humble. And uh, I said, well, you know, I've, I've been 26 before and I was very humble then too. I remember those days. <laughs> it, it's something... That so often, he was, he was kidding, it, it, it's often something that disguises itself in our hearts. It lies latent so often, and it's something that we so rarely 
see in ourselves, but so clearly can see in others. But I want you to know something this morning. Make no mistake, this is true. You could take this to the bank. This is 100% the case. God will humble his servants. God is in the humbling business. He will humble his servants. In fact, as we work through this sort of arc of Jacob's life, it feels like things have really gone swimmingly for Jacob. It feels like he's deceived and connived and tricked his way into blessing. And now here we find ourselves at another place where he's meeting Rachel at the well. And it seems like he's gotten off scot-free. And that he's going to just, in an unmitigated way, experience the blessings of God despite what he's done. He's escaped Esau. He's encountered the Lord. And now he's made it to the people of the east. And here his wife has met him at the well, much in the way that Rebekah met Abraham's servant at the well. We know where this is going. We've seen a story like this before. And perhaps Jacob felt the same way. But, but perhaps Jacob felt like, you know, things I've gotten off scot-free, things are going well, and I'll do exactly like my mom said, and I'll spend a little bit of time here, and then I'll be back on my way, and I'll receive all that God has promised. But like the Grateful Dead said, when life looks like easy street, there's danger at the door. And while it seems like things are going so well for Jacob in his prideful machinations, nonetheless, God is about to go to work humbling his servant. This morning, I want you to see three truths that I believe God will use if you'll open your heart to his word and receive it by faith. I think God will use these truths that are here in the scripture to cultivate humility in your life. I, I think God will use His Word. I think God will use the truth here in the text of Scripture to help kill your pride. You might say, I like it quite, quite a lot. I don't think I want it to be killed. But I assure you that the Lord will humble His servants. And I assure you that humility by God's grace through faith is much better than any life we can build for ourselves through our own pride. Three truths from this, these two chapters of the Bible that I think God can use and will use to cultivate humility in your and my lives. Here's the first. Man's schemes don't fulfill God's plan. Man's schemes don't fulfill God's plan. That's one thing pride tends to speak into our heart. Pride tends to speak in our hearts that all the ends justify good means. That things like scheming and deceiving and conniving are just fine so long as you're doing it for good reasons. But we can see the way that things like these sort of machinations of, of, of sneakiness and deception and things like that, those are really just symptoms of pride. Rebecca had sent Jacob here. Genesis 27, 43, 44, and 45. She says, My son, obey my voice. Flee to Laban, my brother, in Haran, and stay with him a while. Stay with him a while, a little while, until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? We need to remember why Jacob is here. He's fleeing the consequences of his sins. And, frankly, so far, so good. 
Things are going pretty well for him. He, he meets Rachel at the well. They go back to Laban's house and he falls in love with her. And Jacob offers a dowry, a bride price for the marriage of Rachel. He offers in verse 18 of chapter 29, seven years of service. In staff meeting this week, we were talking about the fact that as Nathan told us, it's kind of hard, through Corey, he told us it's kind of hard to find hymns that really match this passage. And I said, yeah, that, that old classic, if your uncle gives you one wife, you might as well take two, isn't really what we want to sing on Sunday morning. <laughs> but he meets her at the well, and you know the story, you know the familiarity, you know how strange these things are. He offers seven years of service to pay this price because he doesn't have what he needs. He's been cut off from his father's estate, at least at this point. And notice what we're told about those seven years. Look what the Bible says in verse 20. Laban said, it is better in verse 19 that I give her to you that than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel... And they seemed to him, what, but a few days because of the love he had for her. I think Moses, as he's telling this story, is intentionally drawing a parallel between what Rebekah said, go and stay for a little while, and, and the way that Jacob feels about these seven years. Things are going according to plan. Things are going right the way Jacob and Rebekah had designed them to go until they're not. And then suddenly there's a turning point. The text shifts here, right in the middle of chapter 29, where the deceiver Jacob, who has been conniving and working, and his plans are going just the way they ought to go, and he's doing all the things he ought to do, and things are falling right into line, suddenly the deceiver becomes the deceived. Laban sneaks his older daughter into Jacob's marriage bed. Thus he marries Leah instead of the one he loved, Rachel. Laban changes the terms of the agreement. And rightfully, understandably, Jacob is indignant over Laban's deception. But notice what Laban says in return. And notice the way that I think Moses is highlighting these things so that we can see how God feels about the situation. Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Do you see the irony there? Do you see the way that this is being highlighted, that now Jacob is starting to experience some of that which he has done to others? That, that Laban sort of talks and you notice that Jacob has nothing to say. And so after a week is done, the week of marriage celebration with Leah, he's able then to marry Rachel, provided that he stays another seven years to serve Laban. God will not. I think Moses is, is trying to help us see that God will not tolerate pride in his people. Sin will only get us so far before the consequences begin to go down. He will not allow our schemes and our fleshly works to stand in for faith and trust in Him. 
He will not give us promises and then let us try to reach those promises in our flesh. We will only receive them by faith. And I think Moses then is demonstrating the way, and these actions are demonstrating the way, and we're getting clues in the text that are demonstrating the way that God is displeased with the way that Jacob has tried to grasp his promises. Like he grasped the heel of Esau. My friends, God will not tolerate pride in His people. And I want you to know that man's schemes do not fulfill God's plans. Rid your life of of any sort of desire you have to build God's kingdom with brick made with your own straw. Reject any sorts of designs and thoughts you have that it's you and your works and your wisdom and your glory that's going to bring God's will and God's purposes about. Instead, know that God will accomplish His own purposes apart from your plans and schemes. And oftentimes, despite your plans and your schemes, God throws down human pride and lifts up His own glory. But it reminds us of something else as we read this text, as we move on. Trials remind us of our need for God. Trials remind us of our need for God. The last part of chapter 29 and the first part of chapter 30 begin to highlight some things in the narrative that trouble us. Things from here start to get... Well, we start to encounter some real housewives of Haran type stuff here in the text. Drama starts to thicken here in the house of Laban. Uh, let, let me mention one other thing. There, there's, a, there's a way that people mock the Bible by talking about, have you ever seen the way marriage is described in the Bible? Do we really want biblical marriages? And I think a passage and a text like this is actually a way to highlight God's design for marriage. That if, if they had done, if not done what, according to their hearts of heart, led them to do, but if they had done according to God's design, one man and one woman in marriage for life, then a lot of the heartache and a lot of the sordid details of the Bible just simply wouldn't be there. We live in a culture that's obsessed with, with, with being autonomous in terms of what they do with their love lives, and yet God's design is a good one. Remember, I, I say this all the time, I've said it until I'm blue in the face, but just because the Bible's describing those things does not mean that the Bible's prescribing these things. So I will say that I think one point of application, brothers, from this text of Scripture is stick to one wife. Thank you. But we do see, as Jacob's sons are being born, now bear in mind, this isn't, just, uh, this isn't just a few pages in the front of the family Bible. This is a description of how the 12 tribes of Israel came to be. I mean, these are high and holy things that are going down. And yet, as these sons are being born, as these boys who would one day become the 12 tribes of Israel are coming into the world, we see all sorts of heartache and pain and even sordid situations. First, you see the heartache and pain of Leah who, though she was older, had to clearly, I mean, even in the pages of the Bible, she lives in the limelight of the attractiveness of her sister Rachel. She had to be snuck in on her husband. And she didn't win him over. Over and over again, we see the way that Leah's heart's broken because she's not loved by her husband. And then Rachel, 
who seems to be the belle of the ball, has her own sort of struggle and challenge that her womb is barren. And so these two realities will drive the narrative as it continues and will lead both women to do things that we wouldn't expect and desperate things and their heartache and their pain will drive them into difficult and terrible situations. They're going through trials. Leah believes that her fruitful womb will earn her husband's love. And Rachel believes that death is better than childlessness. And both of these sorts of tendencies in both of them lead to all sorts of problems in the sense that, for example, Rachel takes matters into her own hands and does something that would have been popular in the culture of the day by which a woman could have a lineage that's considered to be hers. And so she hands over to her husband Jacob her servant Bilhah. And so Jacob conceives children by Bilhah. And then Leah, though she's fruitful for a season, ceases to bear children, it seems. And so she gives Jacob her servant, Zilpah, to give more sons on her behalf, still trying to earn Jacob's love. And then similarly to the way that Esau sold his birthright, Rachel sells a night with Jacob for some mandrakes, a sort of mysterious plant. We don't know why she wanted them so badly, but she does. And then, and then Leah is able to conceive a child again. And finally, in the midst of all that's happening here, as we come to a conclusion of the childbearing years of Jacob, we see the way that God finally grants Rachel a son of her own whom she names Joseph. Now, I don't think we're flippant, but I do think we get used to these phrases. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When God tells Moses his name, he says, I am who I am. He reveals his personal name, Yahweh, to him and says, tell them I am who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think we get used to saying things like the 12 tribes of Israel. We start talking about these things. And it's not that we, that we are glib about them. It's not that we're not sacred about them. But we just tend to think about these stories in neat and tidy sentences. For my whole life, I have gotten meat out of tiny little cellophane packages. And so you can imagine my surprise the day I went to a meat processing facility. I saw things I didn't think were there. And so we take these phrases, Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob and the 12 tribes of Israel. And we often look at them in neat, tidy little cellophane packages. But today we're looking at the way that this thing gets made. And it's not as pretty as we might think. There's heartache and pain and intrigue and sin. Folks are responding to their trials and their difficulties in different ways. And we see the way that God is continually reminding Jacob and all those who name the name of God that there are no guarantees to ease and comfort when you serve Him. And my prayer is that for those of you right now who are in trials and difficulties and struggles, that you'll know that that's not a sign that God's let you go. Sometimes trials and difficulties and struggles, what they are are actually signs that God hasn't let you go. So often, people who have just given themselves totally into sin and abandoned the will of God, things start to get pretty easy for them at times. God may be treating you like a son, disciplining those He loves. 
And certainly if God keeps Jacob and God keeps Abraham and God keeps Isaac and God keeps all these 12 sons of Israel who would one day become the 12 tribes of Israel in the midst of their heartache and pain and trials and struggles, certainly you who happen to know the Lord Jesus, the hopes and fears of all the years are caught up in the Lord Jesus and He's given His love perfectly to you. You're, you're indwelled by His Holy Spirit. Certainly you can trust and know that if God kept Jacob, He'll keep me. He'll keep you. But furthermore, trials crush our pride. Through all this, you can see only God could keep this bunch together. Right? Y'all might feel like that at the Thanksgiving dinner table every year. I don't know. Some Sunday mornings at church, we look look around and think, only God could get this bunch together. Right? Only God could get this bunch together. Only God could keep this bunch together. And surely we see the way that pride doesn't work. All of the, all the ideas and machinations and deceptions that these folks come up with to try to make things go their way really don't work well. And yet God is working in the midst of the trials to keep His promises. And that's our final point this morning. God's purposes... Uh, God's purpose stands despite our sin. God's purposes stand despite our sin. Now, I know folks, and I've been there sometimes, some people read the Bible, and what they say is they read the Bible, sometimes they say, now, if I were God... Now, be careful with that sentence, okay? But some of you might be reading this right now and listening to this right now and say, now, if I were God, I think it'd be about time to move on. I think it's time to sell this stock in the clan of Abraham before we lose any more. However, I want you to remember what God told Jacob. What did he say? What, what, what did God say? He said, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's what God promised. Now, we see all the stuff that's going on, but the reality is, despite the sin, despite the sordidness, despite the darkness that we see in these chapters, God keeps His promises. And we want God to keep His promises, much like Jacob, in certain ways. We, we want God to keep His promises according to our works. As long as you do what you're supposed to do, God, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And as long as I do what I'm supposed to do, you better keep your end of the deal. Or, or we want God to establish His purposes and keep His promises according to our own expectations. When Jacob heard these words, we see back in chapter 28 how he responded. He said, okay, sure, if you keep me fed, if you keep me safe, if you do all these things, I will serve you. You will be my God. I don't think he signed up to go from being the deceiver to the deceived. I don't think he signed up to be humiliated in his attempts to make these things happen. I don't think he signed up to go through the trials and difficulties of life in this way. I think he signed up to go, be blessed, come back home, and live the rest of his life the way he wanted wanted to live it. Thankfully, he has this God who happens to like him. But God doesn't keep his promises according to our works or according to our expectations, but God keeps his promises according to his own purpose of grace. 
And so despite Laban's dealings and despite Laban's deception and despite all that Laban does, as you read in chapter 30, you see the way that Laban tries to deprive Jacob of his payment of the flocks that they settle upon. And yet God continually, over and over in unique ways, gives Jacob more and more flocks, more and more riches. He constantly and continually and beautifully and gloriously keeps his promises. He does what he said he would do. And he gives him wisdom whereby he can obtain large flocks in order that he can sustain himself and his family. Now I want you to know this morning, my friends, that God didn't bless Jacob because Jacob was better than everyone else. God blessed Jacob because God is merciful. God blessed Jacob because God is gracious. Whatever blessings you've ever received in your life, whatever holiness that you have, that you wear around on yourself at any given moment, whatever grace it is that you live out of, I want you to know it is just exactly, precisely that grace. It's not from what you've done. It's not from your good dealings. It's not from your works. It's not from your plans. It's not from your abilities. Oh, brothers and sisters, it's not from your pride, but by God's grace and God's grace alone, God works through us despite our sin. Pride will ruin your life. Pride will drag you from this life straight down into hell in the next. How I long for each and every one of you here to run from your pride and repentance and to run to God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate humility that we're being called to, and this is the humility that I think God is leading Jacob to as his plans begin to unravel, as his deceptions begin to be laid bare. I think God was leading Jacob, and I think at this very moment God is leading you to, 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 to abandon your pride, and to abandon yourself, and to, to abandon your inside dealing, and instead to come to Him broken in humility for grace. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to your cross I cling. This is the ultimate humility, isn't it? To die to yourself and to live unto God by His grace through Jesus Christ. Surely you see it. By now as you read this text, surely you see the way that God's grace is at work. And some of you might think, why? Why all this to do for one family? The reason is that through this family, God intended, as He promised each and every one of the patriarchs, to bless every family on the earth. Even a big room full of pagans across the sea in a place no one had heard of called Alabama. God was preserving Jacob. And God was preserving Jacob's sons. And God was at work in order that one day He might bring His Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross for our sins so that anyone and everyone all over this planet might be blessed by the seed of Abraham, our Lord Jesus Himself, because we have turned from our pride and our sin and turned to God in faith. Would you abandon your pride? Would you grip the feet of the Lord Jesus pierced through for your sins and iniquities in humility and repentance today? I hope and pray that you will. You take a few moments here when I'm done praying. 
If you've never put your trust and faith in Jesus, you'll have the opportunity to do just that. All you have to do is turn from your sins in repentance and turn to God in faith through Jesus, and I believe He will save you. Second of all, you may be a believer. You may need a few moments just to do business with the Lord. You take this time to do that right where you are. God can work there. Finally, you may be thinking of making First Baptist Church your church home. After the service is over today, I'd love to talk to you about what that looks like. But right now, perhaps now is the moment when you need to pray and ask the Lord to make these things clear for you. After this prayer, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his gospel. And God, we thank you for the work that you've been doing now for thousands of years to bring your people home by your grace through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And God, we pray that that work would continue even here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.